If you would find your seat, we're going to, uh, got a few announcements for you. First again, uh, I already welcomed you once maybe, but I'll welcome you again to the crossing. If you are new here, I kind of mentioned before, if this is your first time or your 101st time, but uh, hopefully if you've been here a few times, you've already heard this, and that is that uh, we, um, we kind of consider two main aspects of our ministry, we would call them pillars perhaps, um, and that is this, what you're, what you're doing right now, this Sunday morning gathering, but also, uh, in a sense, just as important, but in different, uh, in different ways and for different reasons, is the idea of these small groups that gather on a weekly basis, usually weekly, um, that we call life groups. And we call them that literally because they're about doing life together. Um, sometimes there might be a Bible study, sometimes there might be a meal, sometimes there might be some other kind of activity, but the idea is... Um, uh, it's folks gathering together to to live life together. And uh, believe me, in, in kind of in this world, we need life together. Uh, there's a lot of non-life kinds of things out there in the big wide world. And so if you've not uh, joined a life group yet or if you're still kind of investigating, um, our website has more information about that. Actually, probably if you talk to somebody afterwards that's been here a while, they can tell you about their life group. And um, I would really strongly urge you uh, especially summertime, it's kind of usually a bit more laid back, not a bad time to try to uh, connect with a life group. Also, we have uh, bulletins. If you didn't get a bulletin, one of these two fine folks will be going down the aisle to uh, give you one until they run out. So get them while they're hot. And you'll see in that, uh, you all look like a fairly literate bunch, so I won't go all through all the details, but you will see that um, our ladies' ministry that we call TLC, or the Ladies of the Crossing, they are getting together soon, uh, this Tuesday, actually, and um, uh, I'll let you see the details on that. Again, you look like you're a reading bunch. Also, uh, something that we do once a quarter on the, uh, the fifth Sunday, um, so that would be four times a year. We, just, uh, we did it for the first time a, a few months back. We're having what we call a family-integrated service. That means that normally, like we just did, the kiddos... Um, dispersed to their classes and things. Um, on the family integrated Sunday, everyone stays in here. And so it's a little bit different kind of a tone, a little bit different atmosphere, but it's a wonderful time of uh, family gathering together um, all at once. It's good stuff. So that's, uh, that's in there too. Then uh, uh, Jack is uh, going to have a brief uh, announcement for us. Good morning. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jack. I'm one of the worship leaders here. Um, and we are going to do next Saturday a worship jam session. Um, I was thinking of doing tryouts, and that just sounds really intimidating. And that's not how we roll around here, so it didn't seem like it fit here. So um, we're going to just do like a jam session. So if you're interested in worship, if you've ever thought about playing on the worship team, but you're intimidated and you don't know how it works... You're not really sure if you um, are gifted enough. Just come um, and come and join the time. Next Saturday, we're going to be here at 9 o'clock um, at the building. We're just going to have a few of the people from the worship team to play with, play a couple songs, just talk, get to know you, um, and just talk about what your involvement would be. So, um, And as you can see, our teams are not too short today, but Max is leaving soon, and Max plays a lot for us, so we are in need of bass and drums um, so if you play either one of those instruments or know somebody, you can nudge them a little bit and tell them to come and try out or come 
enjoy the time on Saturday. So if you're interested, um, I'll be up here after the service. Um, so just come and see me, and then we can talk about next Saturday. So, all right, thanks. Good stuff. Um, lastly, uh, as you maybe have gathered in the summertime, we have a lot of different folks that will come and uh, deliver the uh, the word, the message for us. And uh, this morning we have Brandon. Most of you know Brandon. He's been an intern here in the past. He's been a deacon. Um, he's an all-around servant. And he's also someone that has a deep passion for the word of God and a deep passion to uh, to give that to uh, to others. And so we get to sit under his teaching this morning. So I'll invite uh, Brandon up. Please stand as we read from God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time together this morning with your people. Lord, I pray that we would be humbled as we come before your word, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase. I pray that we would leave here with a renewed sense of your fulfillments of the law and that it leads us to worship and adoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. Recently, a movie was released around the early life of J.R.L. Tolkien. It was creatively titled Tolkien, but not to be mispronounced Tolkien. Tolkien was a notable guy, and you might know him from his creation of Lord of the Rings. And I'm sure many of you, many of you in here are familiar with his writings or the movies, The Lord of the Rings. He died in 1973 at age 81, and he left behind an incredible legacy. He was quite the dreamer. He achieved a first-class degree at Oxford. He was enlisted and sent into active duty in the First World War. He was a professor at the University of Oxford. He was close friends with C.S. Lewis, and he was a lover of languages. He himself knew probably over 10 different languages. And throughout the course of his life, he created, he invented probably dozens of different languages. And many of these languages that he created were used for the inhabitants of Middle-earth. And what is interesting is that Tolkien created these languages before he actually wrote the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings story brought the languages that Tolkien created to life. The inhabitants of Middle-earth and the language that they spoke were now a part of a grander narrative and story. The languages were embedded in the story to make the story full and rich. It would be hard to fully understand the purpose of the languages without the rest of the story. How can we fully grasp why there were 15 elvish dialects without understanding how the elves' purpose, what their purpose was in Middle-earth? And similarly, we can't understand the Old Testament without the rest of the story. Oftentimes, we try to understand the Old Testament in isolation. And we get frustrated and we get confused. Why are there all of these laws and all of these prophecies and all of these genealogies? 
How should I, as a Jesus-believing Christian, relate to all of these Old Testament laws? So today, we will see how the entire biblical story is all about Jesus. Our understanding of Jesus brings color to the Old Testament, just as the Lord of the Rings brought color to Tolkien's created languages. So what I want us to grasp this morning is that our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law will lead to righteous kingdom living. Our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law will lead to righteous kingdom living. And to support and unpack what a righteous kingdom living means, we'll look at two pillars, two points. And those are, our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law leads to a deeper understanding of the cross, and our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law leads to heart-motivated obedience to Jesus. And so on the screen, we'll have uh, the outline so you can follow along as well. But before we dive in, let's take a quick look at where we're at in our story. Crowds of disciples have followed Jesus up on this mountaintop, and Jesus is addressing and he's teaching the crowds. Matthew's gospel account highlights Jesus as the long-anticipated Messiah that will bring salvation to the Jews and the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He is inaugurating a new kingdom, a righteous kingdom. The kingdom is a theme that is thread throughout this gospel account. In our passage today, it flags a new section on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This passage serves as an introduction to what it means to live a righteous life, to what it means to live for the kingdom. So let's dive into our first main point together. Our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law leads to a deeper understanding of the cross. And within our first main point here, we're going to see the authority of the law, the purpose of the law, and the fulfillment of the law. So let's look at the authority of the law and start again in verse 17. It says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So here we can't think of the law as we think of it today in our culture. The Hebrew word here is Torah, which entails the first five books of our Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And more specifically, it's referring to the commandments inside of these books. And there are 613 different laws in the Torah. And you are likely familiar with at least 10 of them. A few being, you shall have no other gods before me. You should keep the Sabbath day holy. Honor your father and murder, mother. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. And so on. And the prophets here... They just refer to the rest of the Old Testament. So the law and the prophets are referring to the entirety of our Old Testaments. So keep that in mind. So Jesus is saying that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That word abolish would mean to be broken down, to be made void, or to cease. And to fill would mean to give full obedience to, or to carry out everything that has been stated. One helpful translation of this verse says this, Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And right after this, Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Here, Jesus is confirming the full authority of the Old Testament. God's law cannot and it will not be modified or altered. Until heaven and earth pass away, 
That simply means until the ends of the age. Jesus is stressing the importance and the significance of the law and the prophets here. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they were confused about Jesus. He had no formal teaching, and they thought that Jesus was likely just abandoning the law recklessly and carelessly. But really, Jesus is doing the exact opposite. Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. He was one was, he was, his teaching was not like that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was teaching, he was going so far to say that the law and the prophets were all about him the whole time. They all pointed to Jesus. Jesus is saying the law won't pass away until every minute detail of the law is fulfilled. It says, not an iota, not a dot. And that just means not the smallest component of the law, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of the pen will be dissolved until all is accomplished. So Jesus clearly has a very, very high view of the Hebrew Scriptures, of our Old Testaments. In his ministry, Jesus quoted from 24 books of the Old Testament and alluded to many more. And this should make us pause and consider, what's our view of the Old Testament? Do you feel the need to read it? Do you feel the passion to read it? Are you compelled to study the Old Testament? Or do you find it boring? Sometimes we can think that our belief in Jesus Because of our belief in Jesus, we can more or less disregard what the Old Testament has to say. What weight, what significance, what bearing does the Old Testament have on my life today? We kind of think of the Old Testament as more or less detached from the New Testament. But here, we see Jesus clearly supporting the significance and the authority of the Old Testament. If we subconsciously or explicitly question the authority of the Old Testament, we are questioning the authority of Jesus. In actuality... Our understanding of the, Old Te- of the Old Testament helps us understand Jesus. If we don't understand the law and the prophets, we're going to struggle to understand the cross. We need to be a people steeped in a love for and an understanding of the Old Testament. The Old Testament and Jesus, they go together. Over the past month, I've asked this question to numerous people. I asked, what two things go together well. So think about some of your favorite pairings. A few things are chocolate and strawberries, wine and cheese, peanut butter and jelly, Aaron and Rita, (laughs) Daniel and hockey, steak and potatoes, a rainy day and a good book, a, a summer day and a cold beer, and so on. You get the idea. I also ask this question. What are some things that you can't fully understand without something else? Here are a few of them. Geometry without algebra. Words without the alphabets. The health of a company without the financial statements. (laughs) Pumpkin spice lattes without Instagram. (laughs) Architecture without blueprints, and so on. You get the idea here. We can't understand Jesus without the Old Testament, and we can't understand the Old Testament without Jesus. So where does this leave us? Likely, It leaves us asking the question, okay, why is the law so important? How did Jesus fulfill the law? So let's address these two questions. The purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law? And there are several reasons, but let's focus on three primary reasons. The law reveals sin, the law restrains sin, and the law redirects our living. 
First one, the law reveals sin. Without the law, Israel wouldn't know that they are breaking commands from God. So the law shows Israel how they were breaking these commands, but then it also gives way for deliberate disobedience to these commands as well. The law provided a sacrificial system to temporarily deal with the sins and the transgressions of Israel. It ultimately reveals our need for a Savior. The law points to our need of a Savior, Jesus. Two, the law restrains sin. Paul, the Apostle Paul, tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that the law functions as a, as a guardian until Christ came. Meaning it had a positive function on helping restrain the transgressions of Israel. So we see the law, it revealed sin, but it also helped restrain sin as well. And thirdly, and we'll camp out here for a few minutes, but the law redirects our living. The law teaches what God requires of us, what it means to be his people. It showed Israel how to be a set-apart nation from the pagan nations surrounding Israel. It shows the character of God, and the more that it's understood, the more we can emulate the characteristics of God. And it's important to note here that there are underlying principles behind these laws. The laws embody a principle. And understanding what these principles are will prove to be a source of wisdom in how we live life. And it'll be a tool for us to discern God's will for us. There would have never been enough laws written to anticipate every situation that we might find. But if we can understand the principle that undergirds the law, we'll have practical advice for our everyday living. And you can actually take this one step further, is you can summarize all those principles into one. Sounds pretty easy, right? Let's see how we do this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, known as the Shema, Moses speaks of the greatest commandment. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your might. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, there's a bunch of laws regarding loving your neighbor. And there are some very specific laws, such as after you've harvested your vineyard of grapes, don't go and pick up the fallen grapes. Instead, leave them for the poor. And then later in Leviticus 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This was the underlying principle in the Torah, loving your neighbor. And this was how Israel could be set apart nation from the pagan nations surrounding to the way in which they loved. And we see Jesus fulfill this throughout his earthly ministry in the way that he loved God the Father and the way that he loved and cared for those around him. Actually, later in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 22, the Pharisees attempt to test Jesus. And they ask him, which of these is the greatest commandment? And what does Jesus do? He gives them two of the greatest commandments. He quotes from the Deuteronomy, and he quotes from Leviticus, by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second, like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These two laws, they undergird all of the commandments. Kingdom righteousness and kingdom living can be summarized by love. So next, let's look at how Jesus fulfills the law. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is, all the Old Testament scriptures find their fulfillment in Christ. And if we had the time, 
we could look at countless instances of Jesus fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. We could look at Micah and see how he prophesied that the Savior's birth, or birth would be born in Bethlehem. Or we could look at Isaiah, which prophesies that a virgin would conceive and give birth to Emmanuel, God with us. But since we're pressed for time, I want to focus in on how Jesus fulfills the law. So let's draw out the imagery the Bible uses for the Lamb, for the Exodus, and for the Passover. And you might be familiar with the story, but Israel, people of Israel, were held captive in Egypt under the oppression of the new Pharaoh in town. And God warns Pharaoh plenty of times to let Israel go, but the hardened-hearted Pharaoh refuses. So the Lord, on his tenth plague, says that he's going to pass through Egypt, and he's going to strike down the firstborn male of every family in Egypt. Pretty severe, and also pretty significant. And the Lord tells Israel to take a spotless lamb without any blemishes, essentially a perfect lamb, and use it as a sacrifice. They were told to take the blood of the lamb, which was symbolic of life, and, and mark it on the doorposts. And when the Lord came through that night and passed through Egypt, he passed over the homes with, door on the, the door, or with blood on the doorposts, sparing the firstborn son. And so after this happened, Israel fled Egypt with haste. And from then on out, Israel would remember and celebrate this through the Passover. This was a memorial, and it was required of the law, actually. They would celebrate through following very specific directions on how to prepare and how to have a feast around the lamb. And it was symbolic of looking back on Israel's deliverance from Egypt, but also looking forward to ultimate deliverance from sin and death. And this was part of the ceremonial laws laid out in the Old Testament. And it all pointed to Jesus' fulfillment of it. Jesus fulfilled this because he was the Lamb of God. Through his perfect obedience to God, he was the spotless Lamb without any blemish. Jesus' perfection enabled him to act as a substitute on our behalf. The law shows us that we can never measure up to the standard that is perfection. In our sinful state, we are under just condemnation. God is just and he is right to punish sin. God is also love. And in his love, he sent Jesus to act as our lamb. Jesus was our Passover lamb. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, God passes over us in his wrath. His fulfillment, he fulfills the ultimate purpose of all the sacrificial system and all the laws under that system. Jesus in love went to the cross to take the curse that we deserved. His shed blood, it covers our sins. The cross is where God's justice and mercy collide in beautiful harmony. Christ's death on the cross, it fulfilled the laws regarding the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the temple, and all the ceremonial laws. Because these were all shadows. These were all pointers to one who would come and fulfill their intended purpose. Seeing how Jesus fulfilled the law, it should lead us and propel us toward worship and adoration when we see how this all comes together. We were held captive by the law because we couldn't meet its demands. We were once slaves to sin, and sin was our tyrant master. This enslavement is shattered by Jesus' perfect obedience to the law, and that obedience is credited to us through our faith in him. The punishment and condemnation due to our disobedience was given to Jesus, and his obedience is given to us. This is a beautiful but scandalous exchange. He was the lamb who was slaughtered on our behalf. 
His resurrection from the dead becomes our resurrection. His life becomes our life. And as we trust in Jesus' finished work on the cross as our Lord and Savior, and as we repent and turn from our sins, we inherit all of the blessings that are in Christ. Christ's fulfillment of the law, it becomes our fulfillment of the law. And this is liberating. Christ has set us free. And if you haven't experienced this freedom, I urge you to consider Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. The everlasting fullness of joy and peace is freely offered and extended to you through beholding the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament, it deepens our understanding of the cross. As we read the law and the prophets, let's ask the question, how does this point to Jesus? How did Jesus fulfill this? Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament will shade the seemingly black and white scriptures in with vivid color. It will bring the scriptures to life in new ways that lead us to adoration and worship. So what does this invigorated sense of worship bring? It brings heart-motivated obedience. So let's move on to our second and our last main point today. Our understanding of Christ's fulfillment of the law leads to a heart-motivated obedience to Jesus. So again, to remind ourselves, let's look at verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And you may be scratching your head now, wondering, okay, Jesus, you fulfilled the law, but what does that mean for me? And how in the world can my righteousness exceed that of the spiritual elites, the scribes and the Pharisees? So let's unpack what this means here by addressing what a righteousness from the heart looks like and what a love from the heart looks like. So the therefore here is showing the relationship between our first two verses and our second two verses. Because of the authority of the Old Testament and because of Jesus' fulfillment of it, now act in this manner. When Jesus says these commandments here, again, he's just referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. So whoever lightens up on one of the least commands in the Old Testament will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches the Old Testament will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the rabbis of the day, they affirmed a difference between light and weighty commandments. An example would be of a light commandment would be uh, tithing the produce from your harvest. An example of a weightier commandment would be, you know, murder and idolatry and uh, adultery. And Jesus is saying, like, hey, you can't, you can't come and play fast and loose with the law. He's demanding the commitment to upholding the entirety of the law. And in fact, later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes down pretty harshly on the scribes and the Pharisees for getting these two confused. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you have ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides. Pretty harsh, yeah? Jesus is teaching the Old Testament as it was intended to be taught. And now we see Jesus' transition 
And he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this would have made the crowd probably feel pretty uncomfortable right about now. Because in the crowd, there were scribes and Pharisees who they, they thought they were the epitome of law followers. And in the crowds were also people who didn't observe the law. So they were also feeling uncomfortable. And that word righteousness, that means your state of approval before God or your correctness of thinking and acting. So your position before God and your actions must be greater than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And if we, mis- if we misinterpret Jesus here, it's going to lead to some discouragement. So don't miss this. Don't tune out quite yet. The scribes and the Pharisees were known as the elite law followers. But they missed the mark on a very, very fundamental level. They were very self-centered. The Pharisees, they tried to set themselves apart from everyone else. They actually took the laws of the Bible and created new laws that were totally unbiblical. And then they heaped those laws on other people and tried to get them to follow those laws. They prided themselves on following the laws that they created so they could appear great and righteous to others. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus says, he gives an example here. He says, two men went to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and he prayed, God, I thank you. I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Then, Jesus contrasts the Pharisee and the tax collector. The tax collector was standing far off. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven because of the shame and the guilt that he felt. And he cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who did Jesus declare righteous? The tax collector went away being righteous and justified. The law didn't require this much tithing or this much fasting. The scribes and Pharisees had devised a system that led them to achieving an artificial righteousness, an artificial counterfeit righteousness. So what is Jesus trying to highlight here? Jesus is calling those who would follow him to a different kind of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness depended on themselves. They are obsessed with outward conformity to an extra-biblical system that they devised. They are obsessed with looking the part. And Jesus is not looking for outward conformity. He is looking for the motives and the desires of the hearts. After Jesus calls them out for getting the two commands backwards, he continues pressing and ripping into them. In chapter 23, in verses 27 and 28, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear, outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus is calling out an outward conformity and an inward emptiness. Appearance can be everything, right? I want to share a quick story, and many of you might be able to relate to this, uh, but I live with a bunch of dudes, and we are always looking to try to save money. And one way that this manifests itself is uh, packing the dishwasher as full as we can to avoid having to run it multiple times. And what happens is, you know, you pack it full of dishes, and then you run it, and then I go, and I take out a bowl, and outwardly it looks nice and shiny, and I flip it over, and 
inward, you, inwardly you can see all of the residue from what was in there before the wash. And then, sure enough, I got to put it back in the dishwasher and run it again. So my attempts at saving money were actually in vain. Anyone relate to that? <laughs> Maybe just us. us I don't know. <laughs> Trying to save some money. <clears throat> um, but the Pharisees' attempts were in vain. They couldn't trick God into believing that their outward conformity was sincerity. And guess what? We can't trick God either without outward conformity. It's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about the hearts. Actually, toward the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warns people who would outwardly confess Jesus, but inwardly would be dead. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And to summarize, he says that there will be people who will claim to have done things for his kingdom, but it was actually self-seeking, self-serving, and self-glorifying. And he harshly, but justly, says, I never knew you. Depart from me. And elsewhere, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. And because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out. Jesus is giving us some pretty harsh warnings here about how our outward conformity and our inward emptiness, what it can produce. And so it's a worthwhile endeavor to ask yourself, why do you do what you do? Is it because of a sincere love for Jesus? Or is your love for Jesus merely lip service? Parents, it can be everything. Is Jesus a banner that you can hang over your life that feels good, looks good, and is comfortable? Being a Christian isn't about comfortability. Last week, Tyler explained what it is meant to be salt and light. And if we are going to truly pursue what it means to be salt and light in our city, it's not going to be a comfortable thing. Gone are the days when Christianity was something that was esteemed and embraced. Culture is shifting. It's becoming more and more hostile to the gospel. And soon, you may be confronted with this reality. And when you are, it's going to present a fork in the road. Will your sincere love for Jesus propel you to be salt and light? Or will your outward conformity and comfortability collapse and you choose the path of blending in with the culture around us? We see in Scripture that the heart is our center of our being. It's our control center. It is governing our thoughts. It's governing our actions. And God, he looks at the desires and the motivations of the hearts. Our heart is something that needs to be carefully guarded because from it flows everything we think, everything we say, and everything that we do. So what motives reside in your hearts? What passions are anchored deep in your hearts? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, If you want to know what you really are, you can find the answer when you are alone with your thoughts and desires and imaginations. It is what you do, it is what you say to yourself that matters. How careful we are in what we say to others, but what do we say to ourselves? What a man does with his own solitude is what ultimately counts. End quote. So to reorient our heart desires, we need to go back to the cross. Go back to the cross and behold Jesus hanging there. Behold the glory of God. Marvel at the magnitude of mercy that has been shown to you. And watch this transform your hearts. So the righteousness being described here by Jesus is a kingdom righteousness. 
And it is this type of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. A kingdom righteousness is rooted in faith in Christ. It's rooted in beholding the beauty of the glory of God. Therefore, therefore, the Christian's righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees because it is fundamentally different than theirs. It's a righteousness that reflects a heart and a passion for Jesus. It's a righteousness that demonstrates a love for God and a love for others. God tells Ezekiel, who's a prophet in the Old Testament, to prophesy and say to Israel, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. So you see God is in the business of performing spiritual heart surgery. And so when we do receive our new heart, when we place our trust in Christ, what happens? We're given the Holy Spirit to be our guide and to be our helper. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, when you heard the gospel and when you believed in Jesus, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that's powerful imagery, to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And what a beautiful reality that is, that we have the Spirit to guide us and to help us. And if we are familiar with Paul's other writings, we know that the Spirit produces something in us. It produces fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruits. So what is the first fruit listed in Galatians chapter 5.22? Love. Love is the first fruit listed. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay, now I'm going to test your Bible knowledge. What does Paul say fulfills the law in Romans chapter 13? Love. Love. Love fulfills the law. Paul says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And doesn't that remind you of what Jesus has said? Are you seeing how we're connecting the dots here? When we behold the beauty of Christ and trust in him, we are given the spirit. That spirit produces something in us. It produces fruit. The fruit that it produces is love, and love is the fulfilling of the law. We as Christians are enabled to fulfill the law of God through our love. This is exactly what Paul means in Romans 8. He says, God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirits. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? What the law requires is fulfilled in us through us living and walking by the Holy Spirit. What freedom we have in Christ. A freedom from the law, yet a freedom to love the law and the power to fulfill the law. So fulfilling the law through love, what does that look like? It looks like not relaxing your love for God and for others in the smallest of situations. Maybe it's just showing up to meetings on time, not because you should or have to, but because of a genuine honor and respect for other people's time. Maybe it's helping someone move out, not out of guilt or compulsion, but out of a genuine desire to serve. Maybe it's giving up a weekend night to babysit, to free up a couple to have a date night. Maybe it's stopping what you're doing at the drop of a dime to help a friend in need. 
And to be honest with you all, this is, this is where I struggle. I'm a very organized and routine person in how I structure my days and my time. Which, it can be a great thing. It leads to good time management and ultimately enables me to do more with my time. But when it's not good, and when I fall short, is when something comes up, like helping a friend in need, I have to break my structure and my routine and my days. And I often get frustrated at that. And it's not because I don't want to help you, but it's because helping you wasn't planned in my day. And this is me living for my own kingdom. It's me not being generous with my time. It's me failing to have a genuine desire to serve others at whatever the cost and whatever the time. And I know for me, I need to go back to the cross and I need to marvel at the love that I've been shown by God so that I can respond in love when I get interrupted in my days and weeks. So are you reluctant to give your time to others or are you quick to give your time to others? Are you stingy with your finances or are you generous with your finances? Are you stingy in your praises and recognition of others or are you generous in building others up? Are you fixed on elevating yourself or are you drawn to elevate others? What talents did God give you and how are you using those talents for other people's benefits? There are plenty of opportunities in our day to love others. And we do this because we have freedom in Christ. Freedom from the law, yet a profound love for the law. And the power to fulfill the law. So to conclude our time together today, think of one of the best books that you've read or the best movies that you've seen. What made it so good? I think when we get wrapped up in a good book or a good movie and we see how the author has woven and thread together a great storyline, I think that inspires us. We love seeing the climax of a great story. When we see the storyline being thread from start to finish and we see the climax and we see the resolution, I think that usually produces something in us. I mean, when we watch Lord of the Rings, I feel like we have an urge to go on an adventure afterwards, right? When we see the story come together in beautiful harmony, we feel a sense of completeness, but also a sense of eagerness to take action. When we see Jesus woven throughout the Old Testament and we see his fulfillment of it in the New Testament, it should spark something in us. It should propel us to love God and to love others. When we see the intersection of Jesus and the law, it will lead to righteous kingdom living. Our salvation isn't dependent on us doing the law. The law revealed our brokenness. It revealed our need for a dependence outside of ourselves. Our eternal salvation, it depends on Jesus. And because of Jesus, we can serve in the new way of the spirits. God's spirit indwells us. It is actively renewing us. The spirit of God is producing a love for God's law and the power to then fulfill God's law. So let us be a people with a passion for Jesus who are guided by the Holy Spirit to joyfully fulfill the law of God, to love God, and to love others. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that we can come and sit underneath it and to be reminded of the goodness of you, your faithfulness, what you've done to bring us from the domain of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of your everlasting Son. 
Jesus, we are grateful for what you've done on our behalf to go to the cross, to take the payment we deserved, to fill all the law required, so then we would be given the spirits and we'd be given eternal joy and peace. I thank you for your word. I pray that we'd be a people that go forth to seek to know you and to make your name known among the city around us. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen.